Rise of the Witches. You will train. You will become my elite. When all life on Earth is threatened by vampires and werewolves, Gaia grants her daughters access to her elemental powers to restore balance. Who better to restore balance than the gatekeepers of all life? Rise of the Witches. You will become my elite. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Challenge Your Environment. This is your host, Big Rich. So I know it's been a while since I've been able to get back on here and some of you have been eagerly awaiting part two. There's a reason for that. Um, A lot of you may know that my son has Crohn's disease and a lot of you may not know. I know I have personal friends who follow this and listen, so they know that I've been dealing with that. My son was in the hospital. It it became very serious and he ended up having to have a couple major surgeries and we're still set up to go back for more. He's been in a lot of recovery. So we've been challenging our own environment on this end. So again, I always thank you for all the support you've given to me financially and just by listening, by uh, being able to share it. I appreciate it. So continue up. And again, I'll try to be a little bit more consistent with this, but we are all challenging our own environments. And that's exactly what this is about. But to finish up part two of 48 Laws of Power, we're going to continue with Make use of the cat's paw. Law 26, keep your hands clean. In the fable, the monkey grabs the paw of his friend, the cat, and uses it to fish chestnuts out of the fire, thus getting the nuts he craves without hurting himself. If there is something unpleasant or unpopular that needs to be done, it is far too risky for you to do the work yourself. You need a cat's paw. Someone who does the dirty, dangerous work for you. The cat's paw grabs what you need, hurts whom you need hurt, and keeps people from noticing that you are the one responsible. Let someone else be the executioner or the bearer of bad news, while you bring only joy and glad tidings. Now I know this sounds really disgusting, but let's put this in a very simple, simple, simple uh, way of saying this. The owner of the company rarely will ever come down from the top to fire the person at the bottom. He hires all kind of middlemen as they call it. They're the executioners for him. So this isn't that disgusting. We see it every day in business practices. Alright, so that's my two cents. Now back to the 48 Laws of Power. Part 2. Make use of the cat's paw. Observance of the Law 1. In 59 BC, the future Queen Cleopatra of Egypt then 10 years old, witnessed the overthrow and banishment of her father, Ptolemy XII, at the hand of his elder daughters, her own sisters. One of the daughters, Berenice, emerged as the leader of the rebellion, and to ensure that she would now rule Egypt alone, she imprisoned her other sisters and murdered her own husband. This may have been necessary as a practical step to secure her rule, but that a member of the royal family, a queen no less, would so overtly exact such violence on her own family, horrified her subjects and stirred up powerful oppositions. Four years later, this opposition was able to return Ptolemy to power, and he promptly had Berenice and the other elder sisters beheaded. In 51 BC, 
Ptolemy died, leaving four remaining children as heirs. As was the tradition in Egypt, the eldest son, Ptolemy XIII, only ten at the time, married the elder sister, Cleopatra, now eighteen, and the couple took the throne together as king and queen. None of the four children felt satisfied with this. Everyone, including Cleopatra, wanted more power. A struggle emerged between Cleopatra and Ptolemy, each trying to push the other to the side. In 48 BC, with the help of a government faction that feared Cleopatra's ambitions, Ptolemy was able to force his sister to flee the country, leaving himself as sole ruler. In exile, Cleopatra schemed. She wanted to rule alone and to restore Egypt to its past glory, a goal she felt none of her other siblings could achieve. Yet, as long as they were alive, she could not realize her dream. And the example of Berenice had made it clear that no one would serve a queen who was seen murdering her own kind. Even Ptolemy XIII had not dared murder Cleopatra, although he knew she would plot against him from abroad. Within a year after Cleopatra's banishment, the Roman dictator Julius Caesar arrived in Egypt, determined to make the country a Roman colony. Cleopatra saw her chance. Re-entering Egypt in disguise, she traveled hundreds of miles to reach Caesar in Alexandria. Legend has it that she had herself smuggled into his presence rolled up inside a carpet, which was gracefully unfurled at his feet, revealing the young queen. Cleopatra immediately went to work on the Roman. She appealed to his love of spectacle and his interest in Egyptian history and poured on her feminine charms. Caesar soon succumbed and restored Cleopatra to the throne. Cleopatra's siblings seethed. She had outmaneuvered them. Ptolemy XIII would not wait to see what happened next. From his palace in Alexandria, he summoned a great army to march on the city and attack Caesar. In response, Caesar immediately put Ptolemy and the rest of the family under house arrest. But Cleopatra's younger sister, Arsinoe, escaped from the palace and placed herself at the head of the approaching Egyptian troops, proclaiming herself Queen of Egypt. Now Cleopatra finally saw her chance. She convinced Caesar to release Ptolemy from house arrest, under the agreement that he would broker a truce. Of course she knew he would do the opposite that he would fight Arsinoe for control of the Egyptian army. But this was to Cleopatra's benefit, for it would divide the royal family. Better still, it would give Caesar the chance to defeat and kill her siblings in battle. Reinforced by troops from Rome, Caesar swiftly defeated the rebels. In the Egyptians' retreat, Ptolemy drowned in the Nile. Caesar captured Arsinoe and had her sent to Rome as a prisoner. He also executed the numerous enemies who had conspired against Cleopatra and imprisoned others who had opposed her. To reinforce her position as uncontested queen, Cleopatra now married the only sibling left, Ptolemy XIV, only 11 at the time, and the weakest of the lot. Four years later, Ptolemy mysteriously died of poison. In 41 BC, Cleopatra employed on a second Roman leader, Mark Anthony, the same tactics she had used so well on Julius Caesar. After seducing him, she hinted to him that her sister, Arsinoe, still a prisoner in Rome, had conspired to destroy him. Mark Anthony believed her and promptly had Arsinoe executed, thereby getting rid of the last of the siblings who had posed such a threat to Cleopatra. 
Interpretation Legend has it that Cleopatra succeeded through her seductive charms, but in reality her power came from an ability to get people to do her bidding without realizing they were being manipulated. Caesar and Anthony not only rid her of the most dangerous siblings, Ptolemy XIV and Arsinoe, they decimated all of her enemies in both the government and the military. The two men became her cat's paws. They entered the fire for her, did the ugly but necessary work. While shielding herself from appearing as the destroyer of her siblings and fellow Egyptians. And in the end, both men acquiesced to her desire to rule Egypt not as a Roman colony, but as an independent allied kingdom. And they did all this for her without realizing how she had manipulated them. This was a persuasion of the subtlest and most powerful kind. A queen must never dirty her hands with ugly tasks nor can a king appear in public with blood on his face. Yet power cannot survive without the constant squashing of enemies. There will always be dirty little tasks that have to be done to keep you on the throne. Like Cleopatra, you need a cat's paw. This will usually be a person from outside your immediate circle, who will therefore be unlikely to realize how he or she is being used. You will find these dupes everywhere, People who enjoy doing you favors, especially if you throw them a minimal bone or two in exchange. But as they accomplish tasks that may seem to them innocent enough, or at least completely justified, they are actually clearing the field for you, spreading the information you feed them, undermining people they do not realize are your rivals, inadvertently furthering your cause, dirtying their hands while yours remain spotless. Observance of the Law 2 in the late 1920s, civil war broke out in China as the Nationalists and the Communist parties battled for control of the country. In 1927, Chiang Kai-shek vowed to kill every last communist, and over the next few years, he nearly accomplished his task, pushing his enemies hard until, in 1934 through 1935, he forced them into the Long March, a 6,000-mile retreat from the southeast to the remote northwest through harsh terrain in which most of their ranks were decimated. In late 1936, Zhang planned one last offensive to wipe them out, but he was caught in a mutiny. His own soldiers captured him and turned him over to the communist. Now he could only expect the worst. Meanwhile, however, the Japanese began an invasion of China, and much to Zhang's surprise, instead of killing him, the communist leader, Mao Zedong, proposed a deal. The communists would let him go, and would recognize him as commander of their forces as well as his, if he would agree to fight alongside them against their common enemy. Zhang had expected torture and execution. Now he could not believe his luck. How soft these reds had become. Without having to fight a rearguard action against the communists, he knew he could beat the Japanese, and then, a few years down the line, he would turn around and destroy the Reds with ease. He had nothing to lose and everything to gain by agreeing to their terms. The communists proceeded to fight the Japanese in the usual fashion, with hit-and-run guerrilla tactics, while the nationalists fought a more conventional war. Together, after several years, they succeeded in evicting the Japanese. Now, however, Chung finally understood what Mao had really planned. His own army had met the brunt of the Japanese artillery, was greatly weakened, and would take a few years to recover. 
The communists, meanwhile, had not only avoided any direct hits from the Japanese, they had used the time to recoup their strength and spread out and gain pockets of influence all over China. As soon as the war against the Japanese ended, the civil war started again, but this time the communists enveloped the weakness nationalists and slowly beat them into submission. The Japanese had served as Mao's cat paw, inadvertently plowing the fields for the communists and making possible their victory over Chiang Kai-shek. Interpretation Most leaders who had taken as powerful an enemy as Chiang Kai-shek prisoner would have made sure to kill him, but in doing so, they would have lost the chance Mao exploited. Without the experienced Chiang as leader of the nationalists, the fight to drive the Japanese out might have lasted much longer, with devastating results. Mao was far too clever to let anger spoil the chance to kill two birds with one stone. In essence, Mao used two cat's paws to help him attain total victory. First, he cleverly baited Shang into taking charge of the war against the Japanese. Mao knew the nationalists led by Shang would do most of the hard fighting and would succeed in pushing the Japanese out of China if they did not have to concern themselves with fighting the communists at the same time. The nationalists then were the first cat's paws used to evict the Japanese, but Mao also knew that in the process of leading the war against the invaders, the Japanese artillery and air support would decimate the conventional forces of the nationalists, doing damage it could take the communists decades to inflict. Why waste time and lives if the Japanese could do the job quickly? It was the wise policy of using one cat's paw after another that allowed the communists to prevail. There are two uses of the cat's paw, to save appearance as Cleopatra did, and to save energy and effort. The latter case in particular demands that you plan several moves in advance, realizing that a temporary move backward, letting Chong go, say, can lead to a giant leap forward. If you are temporarily weakened and need time to recover, it will often serve you well to use those around you both as a screen to hide your intentions and as a cat's paw to do your work for you. Look for a powerful third party who shares an enemy with you. If for different reasons, then take advantage of their superior power to deal blows which would have cost you much more energy since you are weaker. You can even gently guide them into hostilities. Always search out the overly aggressive as potential cat paws. They are often more than willing to get into a fight, and you can choose just the right fight for your purpose. Observance of the Law 3 Kiriyama Daisen was an adapt of Cha no Yu, hot water for tea, the Japanese tea ceremony, and a student of the teaching of the great tea master Shin no Raiku. Around 1620, Daisen learned that a friend of his Hoshino Somon had borrowed a large sum of money, 300 ryu, to help a relative who had fallen in debt. But although Somon had managed to bail out his relative, he had simply displaced the burden onto himself. Daizan knew Somon well. He neither cared nor understood much about money and could easily get into trouble through slowness in repaying the loan, which had been made by a wealthy merchant called Kawashia Senimon. Yet if Daizan offered to help Somon pay back the loan, he would refuse out of pride and might even be offended. One day, Daizan visited his friend, and after touring the garden, and after looking at Soimon's prized peonies, they retired to his reception room. Here Daizan saw a painting by the master Kaino Tinyu. Ah. 
Dizon exclaimed, a splendid piece of painting. I don't know when I have seen anything I like better. After several more bouts of praises, Soimon had no choice. Well, he said, since you like it so much, I hope you will do me the favor of accepting it. At first, Dizon refused, but when Soimon insisted, he gave in. The next day, Soimon in turn received a package from Dizon. Inside, it was a beautiful and delicate vase, which Dizon, in an accompanying note, asked his friend to accept as a token of his appreciation for the painting that Soimon had so graciously given him the day before. He explained that the vase had Welcome back to another episode of Challenge Your Environment. This is your host, Big Rich. So I know it's been a while since I've been able to get back on here and some of you have been eagerly awaiting part two. There's a reason for that. Um, a lot of you may know that my son has Crohn's disease and a lot of you may not know. I know I have personal friends who follow this and listen, so they know that I've been dealing with that. My son was in the hospital. It, be it became very serious and he ended up having to have a couple major surgeries and we're still set up to go back for more. He's been in a lot of recovery. So we've been challenging our own environment on this end. So again, I always thank you for all the support you've given to me financially and just by listening, by uh, being able to share it, I appreciate it. So continue up and again, I'll try to be a little bit more consistent with this, but we are all challenging our own environments and that's exactly what this is about. But to finish up part two of 48 Laws of Power, we're going to continue with Make Use of the Cat's Paw. Law 26, Keep Your Hands Clean. In the fable, the monkey grabs the paw of his friend, the cat, and uses it to fish chestnuts out of the fire, thus getting the nuts he craves without hurting himself. If there is something unpleasant or unpopular that needs to be done, it is far too risky for you to do the work yourself. You need a cat's paw, someone who does the dirty, dangerous work for you. The cat's paw grabs what you need, hurts whom you need hurt, and keeps people from noticing that you are the one responsible. Let someone else be the executioner or the bearer of bad news, while you bring only joy and glad tidings. Now I know this sounds really disgusting, but let's put this in a very simple, simple, simple uh, way of saying this. The owner of the company rarely will ever come down from the top to fire the person at the bottom. He hires all kind of middlemen, as they call it. They're the executioners for him. So this isn't that disgusting. We see it every day in business practices. All right, so that's my two cents. Now back to the 48 Laws of Power. Part two, make use of the cat's paw. Observance of the Law 1. In 59 BC, the future Queen Cleopatra of Egypt, then 10 years old, witnessed the overthrow and banishment of her father, Ptolemy XII, at the hand of his elder daughters, her own sisters. One of the daughters, Berenice, emerged as the leader of the rebellion, and to ensure that she would now rule Egypt alone, she imprisoned her other sisters and murdered her own husband. This may have been necessary as a practical step to secure her rule, but that a member of the royal family, a queen no less, would so overtly exact such violence on her own family horrified her subjects and stirred up powerful oppositions. 
Four years later, this opposition was able to return Ptolemy to power, and he promptly had Berenice and the other elder sisters beheaded. In 51 BC, Ptolemy died, leaving four remaining children as heirs. As was the tradition in Egypt, the eldest son, Ptolemy XIII, only ten at the time, married the elder sister, Cleopatra, now 18, and the couple took the throne together as king and queen. None of the four children felt satisfied with this. Everyone, including Cleopatra, wanted more power. A struggle emerged between Cleopatra and Ptolemy, each trying to push the other to the side. In 48 BC, with the help of a government faction that feared Cleopatra's ambitions, Ptolemy was able to force his sister to flee the country, leaving himself as sole ruler. In exile, Cleopatra schemed. She wanted to rule alone and to restore Egypt to its past glory, a goal she felt none of her other siblings could achieve. Yet, as long as they were alive, she could not realize her dream. And the example of Berenice had made it clear that no one would serve a queen who was seen murdering her own kind. Even Ptolemy XIII had not dared murder Cleopatra, although he knew she would plot against him from abroad. Within a year after Cleopatra's banishment, the Roman dictator Julius Caesar arrived in Egypt, determined to make the country a Roman colony. Cleopatra saw her chance. Re-entering Egypt in disguise, she traveled hundreds of miles to reach Caesar in Alexandria. Legend has it that she had herself smuggled into his presence rolled up inside a carpet, which was gracefully unfurled at his feet, revealing the young queen. Cleopatra immediately went to work on the Roman. She appealed to his love of spectacle and his interest in Egyptian history and poured on her feminine charms. Caesar soon succumbed and restored Cleopatra to the throne. Cleopatra's siblings seethed. She had outmaneuvered them. Ptolemy XIII would not wait to see what happened next. From his palace in Alexandria, he summoned a great army to march on the city and attack Caesar. In response, Caesar immediately put Ptolemy and the rest of the family under house arrest. But Cleopatra's younger sister, Arsinoe, escaped from the palace and placed herself at the head of the approaching Egyptian troops, proclaiming herself Queen of Egypt. Now Cleopatra finally saw her chance. She convinced Caesar to release Ptolemy from house arrest, under the agreement that he would broker a truce. Of course she knew he would do the opposite that he would fight Arsinoe for control of the Egyptian army. But this was to Cleopatra's benefit, for it would divide the royal family. Better still, it would give Caesar the chance to defeat and kill her siblings in battle. Reinforced by troops from Rome, Caesar swiftly defeated the rebels. In the Egyptians' retreat, Ptolemy drowned in the Nile. Caesar captured Arsinoe and had her sent to Rome as a prisoner. He also executed the numerous enemies who had conspired against Cleopatra and imprisoned others who had opposed her. To reinforce her position as uncontested queen, Cleopatra now married the only sibling left, Ptolemy XIV, only 11 at the time, and the weakest of the lot. Four years later, Ptolemy mysteriously died of poison. In 41 BC, Cleopatra employed on a second Roman leader, Mark Anthony, the same tactics she had used so well on Julius Caesar. After seducing him, she hinted to him that her sister, Arsinoe, still a prisoner in Rome, 
had conspired to destroy him. Mark Anthony believed her and promptly had Arsinoe executed, thereby getting rid of the last of the siblings who had posed such a threat to Cleopatra. Interpretation Legend has it that Cleopatra succeeded through her seductive charms, but in reality her power came from an ability to get people to do her bidding without realizing they were being manipulated. Caesar and Anthony not only rid her of the most dangerous siblings, Ptolemy XIV and Arsinoe, they decimated all of her enemies in both the government and the military. The two men became her cat's paws. They entered the fire for her, did the ugly but necessary work. While shielding herself from appearing as the destroyer of her siblings and fellow Egyptians. And in the end, both men acquiesced to her desire to rule Egypt not as a Roman colony but as an independent allied kingdom, and they did all this for her without realizing how she had manipulated them. This was a persuasion of the subtlest and most powerful kind. A queen must never dirty her hands with ugly tasks nor can a king appear in public with blood on his face. Yet power cannot survive without the constant squashing of enemies. There will always be dirty little tasks that have to be done to keep you on the throne. Like Cleopatra, you need a cat's paw. This will usually be a person from outside your immediate circle, who will therefore be unlikely to realize how he or she is being used. You will find these dupes everywhere, people who enjoy doing you favors, especially if you throw them a minimal bone or two in exchange. But as they accomplish tasks that may seem to them innocent enough, or at least completely justified, they are actually clearing the field for you, spreading the information you feed them, undermining people they do not realize are your rivals, inadvertently furthering your cause, dirtying their hands while yours remain spotless. Observance of the Law 2 in the late 1920s, civil war broke out in China as the Nationalist and the Communist parties battled for control of the country. In 1927, Chiang Kai-shek vowed to kill every last communist, and over the next few years, he nearly accomplished his task, pushing his enemies hard until, in 1934 through 1935, he forced them into the Long March, a 6,000-mile retreat from the southeast to the remote northwest through harsh terrain in which most of their ranks were decimated. In late 1936, Zhang planned one last offensive to wipe them out, but he was caught in a mutiny. His own soldiers captured him and turned him over to the communists. Now he could only expect the worst. Meanwhile, however, the Japanese began an invasion of China, and much to Zhang's surprise, instead of killing him, the communist leader, Mao Zedong, proposed a deal. The communists would let him go, and would recognize him as commander of their forces as well as his, if he would agree to fight alongside them against their common enemy. Zhang had expected torture and execution. Now he could not believe his luck. How soft these reds had become. Without having to fight a rearguard action against the communists, he knew he could beat the Japanese, and then, a few years down the line, he would turn around and destroy the Reds with ease. He had nothing to lose and everything to gain by agreeing to their terms. The communists proceeded to fight the Japanese in the usual fashion, with hit-and-run guerrilla tactics, while the nationalists fought a more conventional war. Together, after several years, they succeeded in evicting the Japanese. 
Now, however, Sheng finally understood what Mao had really planned. His own army had met the brunt of the Japanese artillery, was greatly weakened, and would take a few years to recover. The communists, meanwhile, had not only avoided any direct hits from the Japanese, they had used the time to recoup their strength and spread out and gain pockets of influence all over China. As soon as the war against the Japanese ended, the civil war started again, but this time the communists enveloped the weakness nationalists and slowly beat them into submission. The Japanese had served as Mao's cat paw, inadvertently plowing the fields for the communists and making possible their victory over Zhang Kai-shek. Interpretation Most leaders who had taken as powerful an enemy as Zhang Kai-shek prisoner would have made sure to kill him. But in doing so, they would have lost the chance Mao exploited. Without the experienced Shang as leader of the nationalists, the fight to drive the Japanese out might have lasted much longer, with devastating results. Mao was far too clever to let anger spoil the chance to kill two birds with one stone. In essence, Mao used two cat's paws to help him attain total victory. First, he cleverly baited Shang into taking charge of the war against the Japanese. Mao knew the nationalists led by Chong would do most of the hard fighting and would succeed in pushing the Japanese out of China if they did not have to concern themselves with fighting the communists at the same time. The nationalists then were the first cat's paws used to evict the Japanese, but Mao also knew that in the process of leading the war against the invaders, the Japanese artillery and air support would decimate the conventional forces of the nationalists, doing damage it could take the communists decades to inflict. Why waste time and lives if the Japanese could do the job quickly? It was the wise policy of using one cat's paw after another that allowed the communists to prevail. There are two uses of the cat's paw, to save appearance as Cleopatra did and to save energy and effort. The latter case in particular demands that you plan several moves in advance, realizing that a temporary move backward, letting Chong go, say, can lead to a giant leap forward if you are temporarily weakened and need time to recover, it will often serve you well to use those around you both as a screen to hide your intentions and as a cat's paw to do your work for you. Look for a powerful third party who shares an enemy with you. If for different reasons, then take advantage of their superior power to deal blows, which would have cost you much more energy since you are weaker. You can even gently guide them into hostilities. Always search out the overly aggressive as potential cat paws. They are often more than willing to get into a fight, and you can choose just the right fight for your purpose. Observance of the Law 3 Kiriyama Daisen was an adapt of Chanoyu, hot water for tea, the Japanese tea ceremony, and a student of the teaching of the great tea master Shin no Raiku. Around 1620, Daisen learned that a friend of his, Hoshino Somon, had borrowed a large sum of money, 300 ryu, to help a relative who had fallen in debt. But although Somon had managed to bail out his relative, he had simply displaced the burden onto himself. Daizan knew Somon well. He neither cared nor understood much about money and could easily get into trouble through slowness in repaying the loan, which had been made by a wealthy merchant called Kawashia Senimon. Yet, if Daizan offered to help Somon pay back the loan, he would refuse out of pride and might even be offended. 
One day, Daizon visited his friend, and after touring the garden, and after looking at Soimon's prized peonies, they retired to his reception room. Here, Daizon saw a painting by the master Kaino Tinyu. Ah, Daizon exclaimed, a splendid piece of painting. I don't know when I have seen anything I like better. After several more bouts of praises, Soimon had no choice. Well, he said, since you like it so much, I hope you will do me the favor of accepting it. At first, Daizon refused, but when Soimon insisted, he gave in. The next day, Soimon, in turn, received a package from Daizon. Inside, it was a beautiful and delicate vase, which Daizon, in an accompanying note, asked his friend to accept as a token of his appreciation for the painting that Soimon had so graciously given him the day before. He explained that the vase had...